there's a lot of things that we kind of do without thinking about. And so that's a choice. So there's two different ways to operate that you can really be conscious of kind of what you're doing, what thoughts you're allowing to live in your mind and how you're choosing to approach the world or interact with information and experiences. And then there's a way to do that just kind of on autopilot, letting your subconscious drive that and just sort of going through the motions without really thinking about it. grown girls. Welcome back to the Girl We Grow Now podcast. I am your host, Victoria, and I'm so happy to have you all joining me this week. So this week has been a rough week for me. I am recovering from COVID. It's a remote recording, but I actually did this interview with COVID before I actually knew I had it. I just thought I wasn't feeling well. So today's episode is the final episode of the Body Health series. I really hope you guys loved this series because I feel like I have learned so so much through this series and I really just hope you guys feel the same way. Please DM me, leave me a review, let me know your thoughts and also let me know if there are any other series that you want me to do. I want to know what you guys want so that I can continue making episodes that you all love. All right, so this week's episode is about brain health. I interviewed Dr. Julie Rantantoni. She is a cognitive neuroscientist at the Center for Brain Health at the University of Texas in Dallas. She has a 10-year longitudinal research study seeking to define, measure, and improve brain health and performance across the lifespan. What I really love about Dr. Julie is that her content is really approachable. She breaks things down in a way that is so understandable, and she provides practical tools that can help all of us build brain-healthy habits. And that is exactly what she did in today's episode. She dropped so many gems, so many little practical tips that we can use so that that we can improve our brain health. And I think one thing that I really took from this episode is just how powerful and how meaningful and necessary our social connections are. So I know we talked about social connections a little bit in the episode that I did with Dr. Jacqueline Tolentino, episode 21. And it's just really eye-opening for me to talk about this again with Dr. Julie, because I really think that social connections are something that we don't really see as a huge part of our overall health. So we really dive into that. We dive into just different ways that we can optimize our brain and things that we can do daily to make sure that we are prioritizing our brain health. We talk about things that negatively impact our brain that most of us likely are not aware of. And really, we just cover all of the things that affect our brain health and how we can implement things in our life so that we can be one, more aware of how it impacts our brain health and two, how can we make sure that we are doing what we can to set ourselves up for success as we age. This really is a great episode. So let's go ahead and get into the episode with Dr. Julie. Hi, Dr. Julie. I'm so excited to have you on to talk about brain health. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, I'm so, so excited. So let's jump right into it. I love to start with a little icebreaker for my guest. So what is the best life advice that you've ever gotten that you still apply today? Oh my gosh. There's so much good advice. (laughs) So I feel like different phases of life have needed different 
different pieces of advice. I think um, lately, some advice that I've been really living by is trusting your gut, trusting your intuition, and really learning to be confident in who you are and to not second guess that. So there's a saying of like, know who you are, be who you are, and love who you are. And I think those are three really important things as you go to pursue your passions and things in the world. It starts with knowing yourself really well first, trusting yourself and loving yourself. Yes, I think that was so beautifully said. And that's one of my biggest things is just really trusting your intuition. And the more that you go about trusting it, you're going to trust yourself even more. And you'll start to realize that you do know yourself and you will make the best decisions for yourself. So I love that. Can you tell us why is brain Brain health so important. For me, at least, I feel like it's not talked about a lot, probably a lot more in the last couple of years. But why should we be paying it more attention? Yes. I mean, your brain does everything for you, right? Things that we don't even think about it doing, it just does. It's able to remember things. It's able to help us with our daily responsibilities. Literally, there's not a single thing that we do that doesn't involve the brain. And I think for a long time, it's kind of been the case that it's been out of sight and out of mind, (laughs) unintended. Um, But really, like we can't see our brain. We're not able the way our physical body and our muscles change. You know, we just don't have metrics or the ability to look at it. And I think also when it comes to the brain, we only pay attention to it when something goes wrong. So if there's an injury or an illness, and then mental health is another category that is part of brain health. Um, But it's something that, again, there's a lot of stigma to still break around that, I think. And so to think about the brain from a holistic perspective, from all these things that it does for us, I think is so important. I think you're right. The last few years with the pandemic definitely highlighted our need to take care of our brain and how so much of what we do and our lifestyle can impact that. So I think, and I'll also add this, you know, 50 years ago, a lot of people died from a heart attack. Everyone was just would kind of sit around and joke of like, when is it going to be? When are you going to have your heart attack? Right? Like that was kind of what it was. And now we've come such a long way in what we know about heart health and how to take care of your heart and things to do for that. But what our current kind of the update of that now is with the brain, everyone is just like, oh, you're just going to eventually get dementia or Alzheimer's. So we really need to start becoming proactive and understanding what we can do to not just accept this trajectory of decline, that that does not need to be the case and that it's not something that you can say like, well, I can just worry about that later when I'm older. It's like, no, you have to start being proactive and preventative now. Yes. And like you said, it's one of those things that out of sight, out of mind, I think is what you said, but it's so true. I think it's one of those things we take for granted because we just have a brain and we kind of just use it daily and we just don't really have to, feels like we don't have to think to use it. I feel like it's one of those things that we take for granted. So it's just so easy to not even think about what we could be doing to operate optimize our brain and how that's going to set us up for the future. It's like you said, it's so easy to be like, oh, I'll worry about it when I get older. I don't have to worry about it now. But I'm sure there are so many things that we can do now that we're going to get into how we can just really take better care of our brain and just optimize our brain health. I actually love what you just said. Just a point I want to highlight that you said is just that we can be on autopilot or there's a lot of things that we kind of do without thinking about. And so that's a choice. So there's two different ways to operate that you can really be conscious of kind of what you're doing, what thoughts you're allowing to live in your mind and how you're choosing to kind of approach the world or interact with information and experiences. And then there's a way to do that just kind of on autopilot, letting your subconscious drive.
drive that and just sort of going through the motions without really thinking about it. So there's a balance between kind of focus, active thinking and and rest. Um, So that's a different thing. But what I'm talking about here that you highlighted is there's a way to do it with paying attention and there's a way to do it without. And I think for a long time, most people do not pay attention, but it's not because they don't want to. It's because we don't know better and we really haven't been taught or given the tools to understand how to think about it or that there are things that we can do. So I think that's really exciting that we're starting to see that shift and we're starting to have more of those conversations. Yes. And I like the way you framed it of just being on autopilot because I know we've all been there. So with mentioning that there's a way to be more conscious, do you have any tips that we could kind of tap into that and start to be more aware, one, that we are on autopilot and two, just how can we become more conscious? Sure. Awareness is everything. And it starts small. It starts with just beginning to build awareness and recognize. But I think what's interesting is we know from research that because of neuroplasticity, that our brain has this incredible ability to adapt and change and is dynamic really our whole lives. We never really lose that. But just because it has this capability to change doesn't mean that it is changing. A lot of times we are just reinforcing the same patterns every day because we're doing the same things repeatedly. And your brain likes to conserve energy, so it's going to create shortcuts for you, or rather, the more often you do something, it's going to strengthen those connections and pathways and make it even faster to fire, so it goes even more quickly to that default mode of operating. And so I just want to also say that when you start to build awareness and you want to create change, it's hard, right? It's hard to establish new habits to change your routine, but it is possible. It is absolutely possible. So for people listening to know that, yeah, just understanding awareness of what even is my current pattern, right? And it just takes a lot of observation and personal reflection and it takes slowing down. I think a lot of times when we get on autopilot is because we're so busy going from one thing to the next thing to the next. And it's like we don't have time to think, right? But the thing is, is you always have time to think, right? You can always take a pause and really notice. So I think part of it is in a sense, there's an aspect of mindfulness there, right? Of being able to kind of step back and be an observer and be aware of what's happening. There's a special term for this called metacognition. And it's basically thinking about your thinking, observing your thoughts, observing how am I approaching this task? How am I approaching this information? Or as I take it in, what am I doing? And then even with like, you know, positive self-talk, negative self-talk, things like that, like just observing what thoughts am I having? So I think that's a great place to start when it comes to beginning to wake up and shift out of autopilot and start to understand what your own patterns and habits are. That makes so much sense. I love that. So what are some things that most of us do on a daily basis that do have a negative effect on our brain, but we just probably don't even realize it? Yes. So I would say much of the standard American culture is actually pretty harmful to our brain health. A lot of things that are really widely accepted, considered very normal, and um, are even praised or encouraged. And so a lot of kind of this culture, which to give you some specific examples of this, is things like skipping sleep, pulling all-nighters, you know, working 24-7, like hustle culture that's very celebrated, relying on coffee, energy drinks, those types of beverages, a lot of sugar, you know, kind of just like things in our society 
that are really celebrated. Same with alcohol. (laughs) So just things that are kind of normally part of culture that are hindering our brain health. I would also say the way that you approach your day and your time, how you manage your schedule, how you manage stress, finding healthier ways to cope with that rather than just like, I don't want to deal with this problem. So I'm just going to go shopping or I'm going to go binge um, Netflix all day long. (laughs) And, you know, there's nothing wrong with watching Netflix. But I think to understand how that's impacting your brain or just that we're sitting all day in our jobs, right? And we're sedentary when we need to like get up and take breaks and move a little bit. So I think a lot of sadly, the way our society is structured is not promoting the healthiest brains. And some of that is within our control and some of it's not within our control. But it's just all about identifying where you can kind of take back choice in some of those things and maybe make a healthier choice. Yeah. So even when you just mentioned like sometimes we'll go shopping or we'll watch Netflix just to not deal with things. I know that was like my thing in college. I was just so stressed with school that I would just go shopping. And really, I don't know where I was getting money to shop from, but I that was like my thing was to just go and buy clothes. And then, you know, it's kind of like you feel the same, but you just end up with a closet full of clothes. It distracts you for that moment. But the problem is still there. The stress is still there. And so right now I'm in Montreal, Canada, and I walk a lot more here because it is a very walkable city. And one thing that I notice is just the fact mm-hmm. that I walk to my workout. I walk to the grocery store literally everywhere. I feel happier and I feel like it has a boost on my mental health versus when I'm back home in Florida, I drive everywhere. It's usually a little bit too hot for me in the summer. So I stay inside a lot and I've just been noticing the difference. And I feel like, yeah, just being more active and moving more has really had a positive effect on my mental well-being. Yes, absolutely. Physical activity. I was just reading a paper that was talking about how the more active you are in your younger years, the better cognitive function you have in your older years. That was a longitudinal study. Um, And so definitely staying active is one of the best things you can do for your brain long term. It has a lot of neuroprotective effects. It helps specifically with the hippocampus, which is a region involved in memory formation and learning. And so that's really critical. And if there's something that we can be doing to um, kind of increase our habits or our lifestyle to be promoting brain health, that staying active is definitely one of them. I will add one thing to that too, is that you don't have to be doing something intense like CrossFit. It can just be the fact that you're walking to the grocery store, you're able to walk more places. And I know not every city is as pedestrian friendly. So I'm a little jealous that your city is so walkable because in Dallas, I'm definitely driving everywhere. But when I am home, I mean, every morning and every evening, I'm I'm out walking my dog and getting the benefits of nature also have a huge impact on brain health. So we definitely were not designed to sit all day in front of screens and under fluorescent lights. We were meant to get natural sunlight and to breathe fresh air and to be around greenery. Those things all have really significant boosts, not just for your mental health, but also physical health too, as well in terms of boosting your immune system. And the brain and body are not separate. They are so connected. So the health of one helps promote the health of the other. I love that you mentioned that. So speaking of being active and physical exercise, are there specific activities or exercises that we can do that will support our brain the most or just better? So there is a lot of research really that has been done to compare, say, aerobic exercise like cardio compared to strength training, compared to something like yoga. And I would say each of them have different benefits. There is no kind of this is the best one for brain health. So I would say finding what you enjoy and what you do actually makes a bigger difference. Like the best exercise for you is the exercise that you enjoy and will do consistently. There are tremendous benefits. I've been doing just personally looking more into strength training and understanding that stronger muscles and developing muscle has a lot of really cool benefits for brain health and long-term that building 
muscle earlier is much easier. And as you get older, that's harder to do. But I would say a really neuroprotective thing you can do is build muscle. So um, to do that through kind of a programming lens. But yeah, I think a mix of building strength as well as cardio, which could be just, you know, a 30 minute walk or, you know, 15 minute walk after dinner is great. But yeah, there are so many fun ways to move. There's things like pickleball, there's swimming, there's, you know, find what you like. And then also remember that, you know, even if you're just being active, like gardening or, you know, stuff that has you up and moving around the house, like doing house chores counts, right? So just knowing that getting up and um, around is your body's going to benefit from that. I really appreciate you mentioning that the best workout for you is the one that you love because that's true. When you go and do these workouts you hate, one, you're not enjoying it. It becomes a chore and then it's so much easier to skip it if you don't like it. So I love that you mentioned that and even just mentioning finding a hobby. Like if you want to learn tennis, if you, like you said, pickleball, my parents actually were trying to learn that. So that's really funny. But if you want to learn like a cool hobby that's active, like that's going to help you. And I love that you mentioned that because it doesn't have to be like just going to the gym. Yes. And to really enjoy it, to look forward to that time of movement. And, you know, there's a lot of neurotransmitters, brain chemicals that will change and you'll get endorphins and things like dopamine and serotonin after you exercise um, that reinforce that, that your body learns that that feels good to do. And so, yeah, if you're doing something that you hate, it's just like working against yourself. So kind of finding that sweet spot is really important. And also if you do, if you like doing like group fitness classes, or like you said, if it's like something like tennis where you have, you know, you get that added social interaction, it's like even more of a boost for brain health because we know that social support, social interaction is also a very protective factor for aging and um, keeping your brain healthy. I love that. So while I'm here, I use ClassPass. So I've been doing my group fitness workout classes in the morning and it is nice because typically at home, I just go to the gym by myself. I'm very in and out, very focused. I don't really talk a lot, but it is nice because after class, you know, I'll talk to the instructor, I'll talk to the woman at the front desk and it does just boost my mood before, you know, I come home and get ready for work. So that makes a lot of sense. So speaking of just the physical aspect, what about nutrition? What role does our nutrition play in having a healthy brain? Yes, nutrition is huge. So the food that we eat, I want people listening to think about food as energy, as fuel, right? Everything you put into your body gets broken down and that forms the amino acids that are the building blocks for your neurotransmitters. These important chemicals, like I mentioned, like norepinephrine, dopamine, that signal to your body and your brain to do you know, all sorts of different functions. So getting the proper nutrients and making sure that you are giving your brain the fuel that it needs to work is so important. And as far as nutrition goes, I feel like everyone wants to know just what do I eat? What's a, you know, everyone's like, oh, these are brain superfoods, which I don't think there's such thing as a superfood. I think that they're foods that can be helpful or foods that have certain nutrients in them, but there really is no one size fits all diet similar to exercise. There's really very individual, but I will say there are a few kind of rules of thumb that are kind of beneficial for everyone. And so the big first one is it's not just about what you're eating. It's also about what you're not eating. So kind of things to avoid or have less of or to reduce would be processed foods, things really high in sugar, things that have a lot of artificial chemicals and flavors and things you can't pronounce. Like if you don't know what all the ingredients are in, that's probably a sign that it's really processed. And so um, less packaged things, the better. Um, really focusing on fresh foods, vegetables, fruits, nuts, beans, you know, protein, and getting what is local and in season. Those things that are grown in the reason that they benefit your body more is that if they're grown in the environment you're in, nature knows what that plant needs to survive in that climate for that time of year, 
for that season. And so when you eat that, you get the benefit of that, of kind of helping you be in sync with your surroundings. So definitely paying attention to kind of just, yeah, what's in season, what, what is local, not shipping. Nowadays, you can have avocado from Mexico and this pineapple from Costa Rica or wherever. And it's like, it's delicious, but it's not what's in season and is not as beneficial, I would say. So really focusing on those whole real foods is huge. And honestly, doing those two things alone, I think will make a huge difference when it comes to nutrition. I know that there's a ton of controversy over, you know, paleo and vegan and Mediterranean diet. And there is a lot of research supporting the Mediterranean diet. But the one thing I will say that's really hard to separate this out is, you know, when you think about your diet, it's not just the foods you're eating, but it's the context of the lifestyle that you're eating it in. And so part of why there is a lot of studies done on these areas of the world called blue zones. And these are areas where people are living to be 100 and they're trying to understand what is it that makes them so healthy or that helps them to live so long and to not get dementia or other diseases. And they're looking at their diet. They're like, oh, they're eating, you know, this much turmeric or this much olive oil. And it's like, you can't, you know, in our Western culture, we're just like, oh, give me the exact amount that I need to eat every day. Or let me just take this supplement. And that little supplement is not going to cancel out the fact that you're stressed out, that you're eating dinner alone, or you're eating it in the car as you're on the way to something else that you're not, you know, like at the end of the day. Whereas in those cultures, you see, you know, multiple generations living together. Meal time is a time of enjoyment. They're not stressed out. They're able to relax and properly digest their food and get the nutrients from it. So it's really a whole lifestyle. And I would say, you know, it's interesting. There's, I guess, anecdotally, you know, people that maybe they don't eat as healthy, but they have a vibrant social life and they've got great support and they're happy and they're enjoying the things they do. You know, they're passionate about it compared to the person that is like regimented and following, you know, their like perfect diet to a T and never having a sweet and, you know, all of that. And it's like, and they're miserable. (laughs) The other person's actually a little bit healthier. So there's always this give and take. I definitely don't encourage eating unhealthy foods, but I do think it's like everything within context and understanding balance and that you can't drill it down to just a certain recipe of, oh, I need these nutrients and then I'll be healthy. It's you have to be healthy kind of holistically. Wow. Though I've never heard someone mention it's about the context in which you're kind of eating and living in. I think that's really huge because I think it's, again, we don't think about that. We think, okay, we have to eat X, Y, and Z and then, you know, we're going to be healthy and it's like, okay, well, I can't eat this. So I'm just not going to go out to dinner with my friends when they ask. I don't want to do that because I don't want to be tempted. But it's just like, of course, you can make healthy choices at a restaurant. Of course, it's hard if your friends aren't. But it's just really knowing that don't cut off your social life and the thought process that that's going to make you more healthy because you can stick to a nutrition plan. I think that's really crucial because I think sometimes it's kind of what we default to. I know for me, I really like to surround myself about people who have a similar mindset when it comes to healthy living. So I know like, okay, like I can have someone who will want to go on a hike with me or want to go on a walk with me or they know I'm eating healthy, so they're not going to pressure me to eat something that I'm just trying not to eat a lot of. So I love that you mentioned that the contact matters because I don't think I've heard that before. Yes, I love the examples that you gave too. I think, yeah, don't feel like like if you're having to sacrifice one part of your life for another, then that's probably not ideal or sustainable long term. And so thinking like, okay, you know, everything in moderation of like, I'm very disciplined, but like every once in a while, yeah, going out with friends, have the queso, you know, do like, you know, share the appetizer and then you can choose your entree to be whatever, like just like it's kind of finding balance, which I do think balance can be very hard for people. It is easier to just be like, I'm not eating any of that at all than to just be like, oh, we'll just have a few bites, right? It's like hard to to kind of stop once you've started. So I totally get that. And it is, it's definitely just an ebb and flow for each person kind of knowing what they can tolerate. And I, I also think you made a really good point about surrounding yourself with people that support your 
your goals and aren't going to give you a hard time about them, which really it's probably their own conscience that is making them feel guilty or they, you know, they want to feel like, oh, I'm not the only one or they're trying to feel better about themselves. It has nothing to do with you. But yeah, really being selective about who you're going to spend your time with and, and finding people that if not align, at least are supportive of what your goals are. Yes. And I love that you mentioned balance because balance is very hard. So is there a way that we can kind of rewire our brain to because I'm someone I love sugar, but I feel like I have to go either zero or 100, like no sugar, no like processed sweet. Or as soon as I take a bite of a chocolate cake, I want it every day now. So I don't know. Is there like a way that we can get to a point where we can be more balanced? You know, sugar is really addicting. It actually taps into the same brain pathways as nicotine and alcohol, which are obviously incredibly addictive substances. And a lot of people, I would say, use sugar or sweets or just food in general as a coping mechanism for stress. And so the way, I mean, all addiction is, is just a way to cope with stress, right? I don't know how to cope with this uncomfortable emotion, so I'm just going to go to reach for a chocolate bar that'll temporarily make me feel a little bit better, but then not realizing that your body can become addicted to that. So I think, yeah, in general, <laughs> have it sticking to more of kind of like natural sugars like maple syrup and honey and not overdoing it, you know, and and once you do take a break, I'd, I'm curious if you notice this, that then when you do have the processed sugar, it's like so sweet. It's almost like it's gross. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you feel that way. But yeah, so I do think with sugar, it's a tough one. I feel like if anything, that one is almost better to be a, an all or nothing or like for dessert, then it's like you're having fruit or like something that is just really not naturally is sweet. If you like to end, like I do love to end my meals with something a little bit sweet. And so lately this summer, it's been cherries. The cherries are so good right now. But yeah, just having a little something sweet or like dates. Dates are really good with a little bit of almond butter or cashew butter and like a little bit of cinnamon. Like, you know, there's ways to like have a sweet that's healthy, that's not going to be as addictive, that's going to trigger you back into a pattern you don't want to be in. Yeah, that that is a really good point. And it is cherry season. I actually just bought a bag of cherries, though. I can't wait to eat them. But I know earlier you mentioned coffee as one of the things in American culture. A lot of times we kind of like live off of coffee. Can you tell us what effect does coffee have on the brain? Sure. So the way that coffee works is it actually is just blocking the signal to your brain that you're tired. It's called adenosine. And essentially adenosine builds up throughout the day and it's what lets it builds up to let your brain know that you are tired. Um, And so what caffeine does is it just kind of fits into the slot that adenosine would go into. And so essentially it just blocks it. So it doesn't actually give you any extra energy. It just rather prevents your brain from getting those signals that you're tired. So caffeine can have some really beneficial effects in terms of things like focus and attention. And, you know, everybody's different for me. I don't do well with caffeine. My body breaks it down more slowly. And so then I get jittery and I don't like that feeling. But for some people, it really helps bring them to kind of a really nice focus level. So caffeine is not bad. I would just say be aware of what it's doing and then to also be aware how caffeine is going to affect your sleep. So having caffeine really anytime after noon, being within six plus hours of the window of when you want to go to sleep is going to affect your sleep quality. You may not realize it, but it is, yeah, it really does have a big impact. So I think just for people to know that caffeinating all day long is not a replacement for sleep. Your brain really, really needs sleep and um, and then drinking it later in the day is going to impact your quality of sleep, which then will make you more tired and then make you want to have more coffee the next day. So it's kind of a perpetuating cycle. That makes sense. So if someone's trying to drink less coffee or wean themselves off, is there a healthier alternative to coffee? You know, teas are a great option that the caffeine, it's still caffeine, but it the way your body absorbs
absorbs and breaks it down is a little bit different. So that might be a nice kind of just way to sort of taper down. There are also, I cannot remember off the top of my head, the names of there's a few supplements that are nice alternatives to caffeine that just worked a little bit differently that to help increase things like focus. And I can look that up and send it to you later if you want to add it to the notes yeah. or something. But yeah, there are definitely good alternatives. And then I would say truthfully, like getting enough sleep, I would say exercising and hydrating are a lot of things that can help give your body natural energy. And I quit caffeine like a really long time ago. I like having an occasional matcha here and there. But I would say if you are getting a good, you know, eight hours of sleep a night, your body should produce enough energy for you to be able to function. So it's all, again, all about lifestyle and things that contribute to things that we don't even realize that are making us more tired or draining us or things like not getting outside, not getting natural sunlight, things like that, that help signal to your brain um, that it's time to be awake and to be alert. So yes, there are lots of good other options. So you mentioned getting enough sleep and you mentioned eight hours. So that is so hard to me. I actually recently had a sleep episode for this body health series. But can you tell us some of the potential consequences and the impact on our brain when we just get poor sleep or don't sleep enough? Yes. So sleep is doing a complete reset of every brain and body system. It is absolutely critical that at night your brain kind of goes through and flushes out all of the toxins. Your body, you you may have heard of your lymphatic system that helps kind of remove waste from the body. There's like lymphatic massage is kind of a popular thing right now. Um, well, your brain has what's called the glymphatic system. And that's a system that really takes out the trash at night. And it only works when you're asleep. So it's not able to remove things like plaques and proteins that build up throughout the day, dead cells, things like that. It's not able to remove them while you're awake. And we know that there are a lot of associations with the buildups of those proteins and things like Alzheimer's disease. And that if you skip a night of sleep just because you sleep in longer the next day, it's called sleep debt. You don't. It doesn't actually make up for it. So when you're skipping sleep, um, you can't just say, oh, I'll sleep more the next day. It's not how it works because there's toxins and things that did not get fully cleared or removed removed. So that's just one thing. But I would say that's kind of on the structural level of actually what's happening. There are so many more things happening in terms of repair and reset for the body. But then in terms of cognition, your ability to think you're going to have when you're sleeping is when your brain is consolidating memories. It's when it's processing thoughts and emotions. It's when it's kind of going to impact your ability to consolidate and put you know memories into long-term storage. And so, yeah. And then from an, the standpoint of being tired the next day, then like, you know, decreased focus and attention tension, decreased things like empathy, decreased emotional regulation and ability to manage stress. So it is absolutely impacts every area of life. Wow. So you mentioned sleep debt and just sleeping longer the next day is not going to make up for the previous night. But is it one of those things that say maybe a couple of times you're off your sleep schedule, but as long as you get back to your consistency, then it kind of goes back to normal? Yeah, it happens. I would say, yes, you know, the occasional bad night of sleep or you're traveling and you're jet lagged or, you know, there's things like that, like you'll even back out. I think it's just for people to understand that, you know, if I'm going to stay out all night partying or if I'm going to stay up super late cramming for a test or or, you know, to understand the impact of that. If you want to remember 
things, you need to let your brain sleep so it can consolidate it. So if someone's studying for a test, then that's the, the better approach would be to actually go to bed early and then get up early and study a little bit more. But yeah, you don't need to be concerned um, if you had one poor night of sleep and then you're able to get back into your routine. It makes a lot of sense. So how does stress affect our brain? I feel like I know I talk to a lot of my friends and I feel like some of them are just so overworked, overstressed. Companies have reduced workforce. So a lot of us are really stressed. Like how is that affecting our brain health? Yeah. So long-term stress is going to impact at the brain cell level, your neurons. So your neurons have um, kind of these little branches coming out from the end of them called the dendrites. And that's how they connect to other neurons. And that's how they send the signals from one neuron to another. And so when you're under long periods of stress, your neurons actually have less dendrites, less connections with each other. And we also see even cell death, specifically in the hippocampus that I mentioned earlier, that center of the brain for learning and memory. So you may have noticed if you've ever been through a really stressful period in your life and you don't remember a lot from that time or you're having trouble remembering, it's largely because the hippocampus is being impacted by stress, by those increased levels of cortisol in the body. And so it definitely, that also then impacts your frontal networks and the ability to kind of reason and think more deeply and your judgment, your problem solving, those higher order types of thinking get impacted. And then it also affects, again, emotion regulation. So it's like your, your amygdala becomes hyperactive. So you're more prone to stress and then you're less able to regulate it and more kind of driven by those emotions and also become more at risk for things like anxiety and depression. So everyone knows stress is not good. I don't need to hammer it in. I mean, from a brain level, obviously that is not great. But I think the thing that's important to remember is that our thoughts and our circumstances certainly can trigger us into that state of fight or flight, which is your sympathetic nervous system kind of taking over, preparing your body for action. But our thoughts, like in the same way that we can kind of enter into that state, we can also enter out of it and we can find ways to tap more into the parasympathetic nervous system, which is kind of rest, digest, heal, repair, that system can take over. And so really it's important to have a good set of stress management skills um, to understand, to not just wait until things build up and think, oh, you know, when I take my one vacation this summer, that's when I'll finally relax. But it's like it's got to be built in throughout your day, throughout your week, throughout your month, right? These kind of different rhythms of life. Um, so you're not waiting till you get to a breaking point or a point where you're burnt out. So one of the recommendations I have for that is taking short breaks throughout the day. It can be as short as five minutes. Little brain breaks um, is a really healthy practice. Also, making sure that you truly have one full day of rest a week. So, you know, pick one day on the weekend, right? Where And, and also to define what rest really is. So rest is not binging an entire season on Netflix. Rest is not scrolling on social media. It's not, you know, checking email, but rest is actually um, doing things that are restorative, that are healing. So, you know, maybe that is spending time in nature. Maybe that is spending time with friends. Maybe that's having alone time, right? Maybe it's taking a bath every night, you know, kind of building into routine these rhythms so that it's not just accumulating. Because I think, like you said, we're in, we're moving so quickly that we feel like we don't have time or it's like, oh, 
oh, I can't take a break. I have so much to do. And it's like, well, actually, if you take that break, you're going to be refueling your mental energy that's going to help you actually perform better and be more efficient and reduce your stress. So it's really worth it. But it feels like a hard decision to make in the moment. Definitely. I feel like it definitely does feel like a hard decision in the moment, especially when it comes to work. But I do love how you broke down what rest actually is, because I think like you even mentioned earlier, a lot of times we might binge Netflix or do something like that because it's coping. We're trying to cope with our stress. And I do like that you mentioned, you know, maybe try to get out in nature or use that time to connect with friends. But yeah, finding those little things every day. I know for me, I just had to set a stricter boundary, which I felt like I was really strict at first. But when work got super busy. I just found myself working late all the time. And I was like, you know what? No, I'm going to set a boundary of I'm not working after this time. And if I have to work late, it's only going to be once a week. And I think just having those firm boundaries to protect yourself are going to make you happier. And it sounds like it'll help with brain health too. (laughs) Yes. When it comes to chronic illnesses, kind of like what you mentioned earlier, Alzheimer, and I think like diabetes, heart disease, what is the impact that they have on the brain? Yeah. So each of them is a little bit different. I would say some Something like diabetes, glucose metabolism and glucose regulation is actually really huge for brain function. And then also things like heart disease, you know, your cardiovascular system is what is responsible for bringing blood flow to the brain. And your blood is what carries some really vital nutrients like oxygen to your brain cells. And so that is what they really need to thrive. So I guess when you're thinking about things like, you know, heart disease, or if you have a stroke, for example, or there's blood clotting issues, right? Anything that's going to impact the circulation of blood flow to the brain is going to affect the brain, your brain health. And then same, I mean, with Alzheimer's, it's still something that we're trying to figure out, but we just generally see a lot of brain atrophy, a lot of earlier, like those proteins and plaques and tangles that have built up. But it's, again, going back to this idea that the brain and the body are so intertwined that it's hard to have the health of one without the health of the other. Or if one is has something going on, it's going to affect everything. Yeah. So this might be a little bit of a wild question, but is there a way that we can rewire our brain to help us heal certain things? I absolutely think that you can rewire your brain depending on what it is, right? So you can rewire habits, you can rewire thought patterns, you know, social interactions count as learning, right? Because you're learning about that person, you're asking questions. Other types of learning could be like new dance move or kind of like physical movement or a yoga pose. Um, And then there's learning like listening to a podcast or reading a book or taking a class, right? So I think knowing that all of those things and really everything that you're doing anytime you have new experiences, you are in a sense rewiring your brain. I think when it comes to, I want to be careful because obviously it's like you can't necessarily rewire cancer, say, or like certain illnesses or disease. But I do think that our thoughts actually have a really big impact on the rest of our body. So kind of creating an environment. There's some interesting studies that have been done around thinking thought around like safety and love versus ones that are around like fear and how it creates a different environment for your cells. And then your cells kind of either turn on or your genetics kind of turn on um, the genes that are going to signal that it's not safe to be here and not thriving versus ones that are. So knowing that your thoughts really do play a big impact in your healing role for some other physical things definitely goes hand in hand with other 
treatment modalities. But I do think that it perhaps is an overlooked or underestimated aspect of our ability to impact the entire health of the body through the brain. Wow. Wow. I love that. It's very eye-opening. So in our society, which is a very technology and digital media society, how does that affect our brain health? Just the use of so much social media and technology? Yes. The brain that we have is a brain that we've built, right? Based on how you use it every day. And we are using technology all the time. And I would say technology is not bad. I think technology is amazing. It's what's allowing us to connect from across the world right now. It's, it has advanced us um, in so many ways. And it's a tool. And so like any tool, um, it's not inherently good or bad. It's all in how you use it. And I think what's hard right now is learning how to use it in a way that is healthy because it is addicting. Um, There are a lot of features, for example, in social media that make you want to continually check it and be on it and that aren't as helpful. But I would just say in general, my stance with technology is this, is you mentioned, you know, having healthy boundaries or having an understanding of, you know, using these things in a way that is productive and helpful for yourself versus a way that is going to be distracting or impact your mental health or just take you away from being present in the moment in your life and doing other things that you want to do. So just kind of having parameters around what that looks like. And I know that can be super hard, but I would say one big help is turning off the push notifications, not getting pinged and interrupted by that all day, every day, rather choosing, you know, these are the times that I check my email. This is the time that I'm going to check this app Um, and kind of setting that for yourself. So that way you are in control of it rather than it kind of controlling you. I like that. And I love that you mentioned the boundaries around social media. I know for me, I set up on my phone where I can only use social media for, I can't remember the exact time, maybe one to two hours a day. So then I get that reminder of, oh, you're coming up on five minutes. Of course, you can ignore it. But just having that notification like, wow, I've been on social media that much today is very eye opening. And like you said earlier, it brings that awareness. I'm like, okay, there's no more social media for me today. I'll wait till tomorrow. So yeah, I do think setting different parameters, like you said, with turning off the push notifications is a great point to mention because that is really helpful. So what are some of the warning signs or symptoms that can indicate potential cognitive decline or neurological disorders? Ooh, I would say this is not my specific area of expertise. I'm more focused on kind of prevention and health, but I do think it is good, like you said, to be aware. I think having, gosh, there are not good brain health screening measures currently. Like if you currently go to your doctor and you're like, do a brain checkup, they might screen you for depression. And then if you're older, they might screen you for Alzheimer's. But both of those things, you would have to be so far along with Alzheimer's to even show up on that screen or same with depression. Like you'd have to basically be depressed for that to even show up to indicate to them something. So you actually highlight a really important issue in that we don't have a great system currently in our healthcare for a way to kind of proactively screen that to just even understand where you are or like kind of have more early detection. You know, in my job at the Center for Brain Health at the University of Texas at Dallas, something that we've developed is called the Brain Health Index. And so this is a holistic measure of brain health. And we really are looking at potential, though it's not like, oh, you get a score and like it's not like IQ at all, where it's like, oh, that's just what you are and that's what you are forever. This instead is like, here's a baseline for where you are today. And training and with teaching brain healthy habits, you know, see how you might change your score every six months kind of a thing. So it's sort of like this check-in. So that's kind of something that we've developed to sort of address this need of like, I want to have a a pulse, a dashboard, a way to view 
how my brain is doing. And then also a way to know, you know, for me, it's like what's healthy for me, right? So if I'm typically always in this certain range for, um, say, emotional balance, then if that changes, then I can know, okay, yeah, that's low for me. And it's it's you against you. It's not comparing you to a big database, a normative sample, but really understanding because everyone is so unique, you know, where kind of where you're at. So they're really, I guess there are in terms of something like decline, becoming more forgetful or confusion or, you know, there's certain things, I guess, to look for for that. But I also don't want to create a culture of fear or paranoia. And I know a lot of people will say that are in their 60s or 70s, you know, it's like, oh, they can't remember where they put their keys or they can't remember that person's name. And then it causes a lot of anxiety when really it's kind of like it's a normal, that's sort of a normal part of aging of like, you know, it's okay to not remember every single thing, but when it becomes concerning. So I think just having a good pulse on knowing yourself and then knowing if you're noticing those changes changes and then talking with your doctor. And I would say most traditional doctors, again, don't have a lot of tools for that, but like there's a lot of good functional medicine providers that are going to look more holistically at, you know, root causes of things and the whole picture that I think can be really helpful. Yeah. I love that you mentioned functional medicine. I also had a functional medicine doctor on as part of this series because I started seeing a functional medicine doctor in February. And it is really different because it is nice to have that holistic perspective. And it's not just focused on my annual checkup, my labs, my well woman's, it's also focused on my movement, my nutrition and social connections, as you mentioned. So I think it really just broadened my perception of what a holistic health really is. I've always just thought nutrition and exercise. And I personally have never really thought beyond that in terms of my health and wellness journey. So it's just really opened my eyes a lot. So I am definitely an advocate for functional medicine if it's something that you can add into your budget for sure. Are there any specific strategies or techniques for enhancing our memory and cognitive functions? So as far as strategies, I mean, sleeping enough, getting adequate nutrition and hydration and all those other things that we already talked about are going to support memory. So I think a lot of times people are like, give me a supplement, give me a pill, give me a magic boost, you know, and it's like, Mm -hmm. actually, like I said, it's just really lifestyle is huge. But I think in terms of strategies for how you approach information, a lot of times I think people do not remember what happened um, because we weren't fully present. We were distracted. We were on our phone. We were thinking about something else. So really making sure that you're fully paying attention is huge. And that is hard because like I said, we're used to this technology constantly distracted world. And so to be able to get in a place of deep focus is really important in learning how to do that. And you can start to do that just, you know, interval training, really, like I'm going to set this timer for 10 minutes and just do this one thing at a time, right? Focus on it. So attention is a huge piece because if you're not attending to it, you don't have a chance to encode it. And then with encoding it, that sort of happens out of your control. It's sort of a process that the brain takes care of of once you've attended to that information. But the more that you experience something, we know the more senses, like you see it, you hear it, you touch it, you, you know, you do it, like the more different ways you can engage with things. Also spaced repetition for that type of like new learning memory. But yeah, generally, I would say if we can just slow down and be present, we will remember a lot more. I think that's a huge point to make is just being more present. And it goes back to what we talked about earlier about the awareness and being more conscious of what we're doing. So I think that's a huge point to make. Can you tell us what a brain optimizing morning routine would be and also a night routine? Sure. This is not prescriptive. I'll just 
I'll just share what I do. And so, um, and I also don't want it to sound overwhelming. I want it for anyone listening, think of maybe one thing you could add or change and maybe one new thing you could add or change for your evening routine. And then over time, you can add more tweaks, but um, to not get overwhelmed and try to change everything at once, but to just start small. So a few components of my morning routine that are essential to me setting up my brain for success for the day. It starts the night before by going to bed on time or early and getting all my sleep. But yeah, I definitely spend between 10 to 20 minutes meditating um, and doing breath work. So that's really important. Of That's also kind of a time for me of prayer as well as affirmations and just kind of getting my thoughts right and then doing breath work is great. Getting outside and getting morning sunlight. So I get to walk my dog every morning. I get movement. I get sunlight, which helps to set your circadian rhythm. And then I do like some type of workout. So some type of exercise. I mean, I'll do strength training, but just walking the dog is probably enough just depending on how much time you have in the morning. And then like for your shower, if you can do a cold shower at the end, if you don't want to take an entirely cold shower, but just at the end of your shower, turn it all the way to cold and do like 30 seconds to a minute um, of that cold. That's going to wake your brain up um, in a really good way. It's a good stress for your body. It helps build resilience and also gives you a nice boost of some different neurotransmitters to help you focus and think. So those are some things I would incorporate. And then having a healthy breakfast as well is good too. Hydrating, start off with a glass of a full glass of water. I like to put lemon in mine, just room temperature lemon water is great. Um, So those are some components. And then in the evening, wind down routine is really important. So whether that's taking a hot bath or shower, kind of staying off of technology 30-ish minutes before bed, um, no screens. So um, I like to use lamp light instead of the overhead lights to help kind of dim and also signals with your eyes to your brain to prepare you for sleep. Having a solid sleep environment, so blackout shades, not having a bunch of glowing things plugged into your room or screens, just like um, having a real haven for rest. Yeah, and then kind of journaling or reading or doing something, some type of calming activity to wind down is really helpful and definitely not perfect at this all the time. I would say staying off technology prior to bed is definitely a hard one. But I will say charging my phone in the bathroom instead of in my bedroom, like don't sleep next to your phone (laughs) is a big recommendation because then you aren't tempted to be on it right when you wake up. um, You can, you know, kind of set your mindset and breathe or do whatever you want to do before you immediately jump into the technological world. (laughs) Yes, I love that. So I love that you prefaced it and saying, you know, you don't want to overwhelm yourself and add or change maybe one thing in the morning routine and one thing in your nighttime routine because I did an episode on routines last week and I kind of mentioned the same thing because we hear all these things and if you're striving to live healthy it can be so exciting to implement all these things but if it's overwhelming us and stressing us out then it's definitely defeating the purpose so I love that you prefaced that and just gave us your routine. So Dr. Julie it's been amazing having you on can you tell the audience where they can follow you and learn more tips from you? Yes. Thank you so much for having me. My handle is at Dr. Julie Fratantoni. It's the same handle on Instagram and on TikTok. So definitely drop me a DM. Would love to connect with you. Thank you all for tuning into this week's episode. If you really loved the episode and you felt like it resonated with you, be sure to share the love and share the episode with a friend. Also, if you could take a minute and head to the review section wherever you listen to your podcast and leave me a review, letting me know what you're loving about these episodes and which topics you want to hear next. That way, I can make sure that I continue creating episodes that you love. Also, make sure you hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss an episode. Until next week, bye, grown girl gang.